Hello and welcome to another episode of the UK Airshow Review Podcast, the podcast we started when we had no airshows to review. My name is Sam and joining me tonight is Dom. Uh, and also joining us is a very familiar guest to any UK airshow goers of the last 10 years or so, uh, a voice that anyone who watched the Red Arrows display will instantly recognise, is Mike Ling, former Red Arrows pilot and Red 10 commentator, uh, now a member of the Blades display team and uh, a few other things I'm sure he's going to tell us about. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Mike. Hello, Sam. Hello, Dom. Good evening. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Um, so, I mean, first of all, why don't you start by telling us how did you get into flying? How did you get into the RAF? And, and what was your, your pre-Red Arrows career? Well, I so I grew up in Biggin Hill, which I'm sure a lot of airshow fans will know is is an airfield southeast London, a very famous in the Battle of Britain as a sector station in the Battle of Britain. And every year they had the Biggin Hill Airfair, and I went there from when I was one year old all the way up until I was uh, 18 and uh, leaving to join the Royal Air Force. So I saw the Red Arrows display there every year, and it was when I was three I actually told my mother I wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot. So uh, <laughs> every time the airshow was on, I'd go up to the airfield on you know, arrivals day on the Thursday, the Friday, all weekend. When I joined the Air Cadets, I was there helping out as a cadet. And then um, I thought, well, I don't want to go to university, so I will go and join the Royal Air Force and try and realise my dream of, of being a pilot in the Royal Air Force and then hopefully one day being in the Red Arrows. Okay. Um, and and how did you join the RAF? Well, so I, as soon as I got my A-level results, I phoned the careers office and says, right, I've got my A-levels results now. I've got enough to apply to be an officer. Can I please come for a selection interview? And then um, it was actually the day of my A-level results that afternoon. I phoned this office and, and the sergeant at the careers office said, I'm really sorry, but you didn't do very well. You're, you're never going to be a pilot <laughs> on those grades. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, I was, oh, I guess I was 18. Uh, and just he, that one phone call you know, shattered my dreams. I was yeah. really devastated. So I sort of went tail between my legs and uh, I went and applied to join the army and I went and did the army selection tests and uh, I went to Purbright and did my four day selection to be, and this was to be an aircraft engineer. So not an officer. I was just going to mm. be a technician in the army air corps. And I went to Purbright, did all the selection and I got selected. And then I was due to go to Winchester to start my basic army training. And I was about two days away from going, I think it was. And I got a call from another Royal Air Force Careers Office, which was in Chatham in Kent. And I'd actually done my flying scholarship application through them. It was the school's uh, liaison officer um, actually was attached to Chatham. And uh, he said, I, I've just found out you're going into the army. And I said, well, yeah, I haven't got good enough A-levels to be a pilot in the Air Force. He said, well, that's absolutely rubbish. Come and see me. So the next day, <laughs> I went I went to Chatham and had an interview. Two weeks later, I was at the Officer and Aircrew Selection Centre at Cranwell. And then around about eight weeks later, I was on initial officer training, starting my journey as a, an officer and then pilot in the Royal Air Force. So, yeah, a bit of a bit of a black time when I got told by somebody mm. who clearly didn't know what they were talking about that uh, I didn't have the grades to be a pilot. Um, I'd actually... Really love to meet that person now and just um, see, what, <laughs> see what his reaction would be. Show him your MBE. Yeah, just uh, maybe he's, maybe he's seen me display at an air show. Who knows? <laughs> um, and then after joining the RAF, obviously you went through your officer training and and tell us what your your pilot training was and then what you went on to fly. Well, yeah, so officer training was was brilliant. I was I was the youngest person on my officer training course at Cranwell. So I was just I joined just after my nineteenth birthday. And as I said, the youngest person on the course, brilliant, brilliant time, six months at Cranwell, going through all the leadership training, all the academic side, really enjoyed it. Uh, 
passed out from there and then went and started my fly training, starting off at uh, Church Fenton on the Firefly, the Slingsby Firefly, that uh, bright yellow plastic machine that uh, unfortunately isn't in service in the Royal Air Force anymore, but it was part of the Joint Elementary Fly Training School and it was a brilliant time. You know, you're getting let loose on this aeroplane that that was quite powerful, you know, mm. 260 horsepower aerobatic uh, aerobatic machine that you could really fling around and i enjoyed that course immensely as i say it was i was still quite young and uh all the people on the course there it was as a joint course so uh, army and navy as well and i had just met lifelong friends and i'm still still to this day in touch with most of the people that were on my course uh and that was it so at the end of that course the elementary course you would then get streamed based on your performance so you either mm-hmm. go fast jets or you go to the multi-engine stream or you go rotary I obviously wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot, so I was desperate to go to fast jets. I'd done all right on the course, and I was then sent to fly the Tucano, so the basic fast jet trainer at the time, at Linton on Ooze, which was just up the road in Yorkshire, and it was the best course ever. You know, there were lots of students. I'm talking now in sort of 1999 was when I went through that course. So okay. it was it was the time when, post the first Gulf War, the Air Force was desperately short of pilots. So there were so many students on every course. I think there were six courses a year. Each of them had about 16 students on. So there were lots and lots of like-minded people, similar age, going through this training course. And it was brilliant. You you would work hard during the week and then at weekends you'd go and party hard. And it was, uh, it was a really good time. <laughs> really good time. I can, I'm going to tell you, you've got a huge grin as you're talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was brilliant. It was about a year at Linton. Uh, so... Lots of great nights in York, lots of brilliant flying. And you're going from having only really flown an aeroplane on your own solo probably six or seven times on the elementary course. You're then in a Tucano, which can go up to 300 knots, so just over 300 miles an hour. And you're then, again, starting with the basic steps, so the circuits, navigation, aerobatics, then formation, then low-level navigation, then night flying and tactical formation. It was Mm. was really really developed course and by the end of it about 140 hours i think it was you you were actually pretty good in fact now they they award wings to fast jet pilots at the end of that course i didn't get my wings at the end of that i got them at the end of the the first hawk course but Mm -hmm. now they're awarding wings because you are learning an awful lot in that year on that that basic fast jet platform that's really interesting was there any elements of your training that one part you excelled in and one part you just thought i can't believe i've got to do this again (laughs) that's a good question so i uh, on the elementary course i I won the aerobatics trophy although i don't know whether it was for the rest of my course mates they just thought i was the most ham-fisted pilot the most (laughs) agricultural pilot but i think the instructors thought i was reasonable at aerobatics so i won that trophy which was was quite i was quite proud of and then on the basic course i I was pretty good at instrument flying, I'm sad to say, uh, which is the, the sort of accurate flying on instruments for when you're flying around in cloud. And, and again, I was, I was reasonable at formation and aerobatics. The, the low-level navigation I struggled a little bit with, and I did, in fact, fail my first final navigation test. Uh, we were in Scotland, and I just got, I got lost, which you definitely don't want to do on any final navigation test, for sure. And I, I got lost in Scotland and had to, had to refly that trip, which was quite disappointing. But it goes for everyone. Most, most people at some point in their career are going to fail a trip and and really it's then bouncing back because you can get on a very slippery slope of failing one trip thinking you're rubbish not being able to pull yourself out of it and get on with it and refly it and then carry on with the rest of the course and unfortunately i saw a lot of people fall by the wayside of of just not being able to claw their way back out of a hole that they they started sliding into 
and mm. it's very sad it's very sad but thankfully in my case i i got through that little navigation hurdle and and moved on to fly the hawk obviously went successfully uh well uh and then you flew the tornado yeah well uh, there was a bit of a, a stage in between that actually so i moved across at the end of linton i moved across to anglesey to rf valley to fly the hawk t1 that was on uh, 208 squadron which at the time was sort of the advanced flying training squadron so almost what everything you'd done in the Takano you then put into practice in the Hawk so much faster you know the jet can fly at 550 knots it go much higher up to 48,000 feet it, it's a swept wing airplane so it handles very differently to the Takano which is a turboprop mm. with a propeller so you had to learn all these nuances of how to handle a jet you're flying around at 250 feet at 420 knots through the Welsh valleys is is not something you can just go and do it's it's a graduated approach which is why you do it at 240 knots in the Takano and then when you've got that proficiency you move up a gear and go to 420 knots in the Hawk so moved across the valley I did that course uh when we're talking now two thou end of 2000 2001 uh, and then at the end of that course you would then move on to what we call the tactical weapons unit so that the, the next phase the final phase of flying training uh in in some people's cases Actually, you didn't move on to tactical weapons training. You actually stayed in the training world and went to be a first tourist instructor. Now, this is okay. this was nothing. This was nothing new. This has been happening for decades, and it, it's known as being a creamy. So you're mm-hmm. kind of creamed off the top of your course. So those who are performing well and have the right attributes to be an instructor, then because there were so many students and a massive need for instructors, I was asked to go back to. I say asked, <laughs> I was told I was going back to Linton News to be an instructor on the Takano. So I packed my bags at, on Anglesey, went back across to Yorkshire and joined the Central Flying School to learn how to be an instructor on the Takano. So how, how did you feel about that? And the, the reason I asked that is because I was reading a book recently um, called Flying Under Two Flags or something like that. And it was about a, an RAF pilot in the war who went on to fly for Israel in their first war of independence and blah, blah, blah. But he just spends a lot of the time in the book talking about how frustrated he was. He never actually saw combat in the war because he was put straight into being an instructor. And he said that he was desperate for combat and he always wanted to fly in combat. Um, obviously not necessarily you, you weren't at war at the time, but we was there an element of frustration at going on to becoming an instructor rather than going straight onto the fast jets? Absolutely there was. So... I was, I think, 21 when this happened. So, yeah, I was 21 when I when I was creamed off back to the Takano. And all my peers, a majority of my peers, stayed, stayed at Valley to progress on to the, the tactical weapons course. And, of course, they were going to get to the front line. In the time I was going to be, I don't want to say treading water, but, but pausing in my mm. advancing career um, as an instructor, they, they would be on the front line flying at the time, Tornadoes, Harriers, Jaguars. And I was going back to this aeroplane that, was a lot slower than a hawk. Uh, I'd enjoyed it, don't get me wrong, but I, I wanted to stay in in the fast jet world. Uh, so I was I was disappointed in one sense, but I was also quite honoured in another that I'd been mm. recognised as the sort of person that could go and and do this job. So I, I went with a very open mind back to Linton News, did the Central Flying School course where they teach you to be an instructor, which is quite interesting in itself. Um, and then uh, I think that was around about four months. And then I was let loose with students on on what was at the time number one squadron, one flying training school. And I think I was 20, yeah, I was probably just 22 when I graduated from that course. And and the beauty of that meant that a lot of my students that had been through university were now, if not the same age, slightly older than me. 
<laughs> so it was really quite quite good fun to be a very junior. I was a flying officer, so I, I wasn't even a flight attendant. So I was a, a very junior officer, very young, teaching people how to fly this car note. So it was actually a real privilege. And looking back, I, I wouldn't have wanted anything different because I learned so much. And the Takano mm. was great. You could you could go to a lot of places in it where you wouldn't be able to get a fast jet because it had reverse thrust and you could land in a lot shorter distance than a Hawk. So actually going back to that as a as a creamy instructor was very useful. Not just that, because because as I said already, that Hawk course was kind of the first Hawk course was almost teaching people what they'd already learned in a Takano, but how to do it a bit quicker. Whereas in the Takano, they hadn't done it at all. So you were teaching them very fresh. So your instructional skills, I'm probably going to get ribbed for saying this by all my hawk creamy mates, but uh, <laughs> but your, your instructional skills almost had to be better than those who were instructing on the hawk, if that makes sense. So yeah, I, I did thoroughly enjoy it. And, it was, and I was back in York for, for three years and mm-hmm. the atmosphere at Linton on Ooze, I'm, sadly it's closed now, but the, the atmosphere at Linton is was buzzing, absolutely buzzing, both in the work environment and the social environment and then York on the doorstep. So a brilliant, brilliant three years. Sounds like it's very rewarding as well. It hundred percent was. You know, you see uh, the number of students I I saw turn up on the course, uh, having only done their elementary flying, to then graduate. And as I say, they they then got their wings on that course. So to see mm-hmm. them go from fledgling to to winged pilot on that on that year long course at Linton was brilliant. And and in fact, a lot of my students are I'm still in touch with now as as lifelong friends. So it's it was really fantastic opportunity. As at the at the time I was creamed off disappointed i wasn't going to go and get to the front line as a as a harrier pilot or a tornado pilot or jaguar pilot but actually it probably stood me in pretty good stead but you then obviously did end up on the tornado as a, as a frontline pilot what was the the process to that was it a given that you would eventually be moved onto the or, or, or back onto the fighter stream yeah so a creamy would always do their instructional tour and then go then on to the attack weapons phase now when i'd finished my instructional tour we had an awful lot of students so we'd actually rolled into a program called the nato flying training course in canada or nato flying training canada nftc and this was something that a a variety of nato nations and others in fact had signed up to where you would go and fly a a digital version of the hawk so the hawk 115 so the hawk 100 series with a glass cockpit and multi-function displays and things you'd go and fly that on a very similar tactical weapons course that would have been flown on the t1 at valley but over in uh, northern Alberta in Canada, which was mm-hmm. a fantastic experience. So I spent, I think, eight, eight or nine months living in Canada, first in Saskatchewan in the prairies, and then moved across to Alberta to go and do the, the actual attack weapons phase. Brilliant time. Again, very, very fortunate to have been picked to go and do it and, uh, and learned an awful lot from other NATO colleagues. You know, my, my wingman on the course was an Italian, and I'm still in touch okay. with him, in fact. So he's an Italian, <laughs> uh, Italian fast jet pilot still in touch with him and it was brilliant to work and operate and train alongside other countries mm. um i tell you what let's let's skip forward um past your tornado years onto the red arrows because obviously um your experience with the red arrows is is probably the main reason we've asked you if you'd like to come on the podcast um you said from the age of three you wanted to join you, you wanted to be a red arrows pilot um was that still your aim from from your early years of your RAF career, and how did you go about it? How did you join the the, the Red Arrows and, and get selected? 
Well, it was 100% still my aim. And I think, in fact, I put on just about every appraisal, you know, what my aspirations were in my career was to, to be a, a Red Arrows <laughs> pilot. So it, it, was, it was definitely known to all my seniors that that's definitely something I wanted to do. It was just a case of getting the right attributes. So you, you, you know, you've got to be an above average pilot and a completed a frontline tour. And people often ask, well, what does that mean, a frontline tour? Well, what it really means is because you've got to have 1,500 hours of flying to apply for the Reds, you could get 1,500 hours as a creamy, as I've described. And then if you hadn't done a frontline tour, mm. then you can get in the Reds. So that's why they say you have to have done a frontline tour. So if you've been a creamy and you've got 1,500 hours and you're above average, you can't apply to join the Red Arrows because you haven't been to the front line. So that's what it means. You haven't flown the Tornado, if Jaguar, I, Harrier. If I can just interrupt you, why is it the requirement that you have to do a frontline tour? What 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 does that bring to a, to a Red Arrows pilot that someone who hasn't done that would wouldn't? Uh, I, I imagine it's because you, you know the, the Royal Air Force's requirement is to have people on the front line. So if you go straight from a an instructional role straight into the Reds, you, you haven't uh, provided any service to the front line yet. So you, <laughs> you've got to do that first. And also they also they want the breadth of experience. You know, there's there's so much you learn on a front line squadron that they need you to bring to the Red Arrows because. The, the way the team operates relies on individuals bringing their own wealth of experience. Um, uh, sorry, so you you were talking about your your path to the Red Arrows? Uh, yeah, so that was I so I couldn't apply after my creamy tour, so I went to the went to Canada, went to the Tornado, and again on my Tornado uh, squadron on every appraisal, I put I really want to join the Red Arrows, and it just so happened my squadron commander at the time was a former Red Arrows pilot, so he was quite uh, happy with my desire to go and join the team and uh as soon as i got the the correct the correct credentials so i was assessed as above average i uh, had got enough appraisal reports on my frontline tour and i had 1500 hours and i was now by now a flight lieutenant so i was junior officer they're, they're, they're the things you have to have boxes ticked if you like before mm-hmm. you can apply to join so i put my application in this was 2000 early 2007 uh and really i didn't think I was going to get in. I just wanted to get my name known that, hey, this is me. I'm really, really keen. Just please have a look at my uh, my background. I put my name, uh, put my application in. And the next thing I know, I got a, a message or an email. Or in fact, I can't remember if there's a signal. Anyway, I got told I'd been shortlisted. So I've been down selected from the 35, 40 applicants down to the, the last nine. And that okay. I was going to go to the training camp in Cyprus and go for a week-long selection, which... Uh, I didn't expect, as I say, I put my name in just because I wanted them to know that I was interested. Uh, in all honesty, I probably was enjoying the tornado a lot and could have quite happily done another year. I just wanted them to know that I was interested. Uh, but I was shortlisted, went to my shortlist, and it was brilliant time. I didn't go there with, I went I went quite relaxed because of that. I didn't think I was going to get in. I just thought, I'm not, I know I'm not going to get in this year. There are far more experienced people than me on my shortlist out of the the nine of us i'm pretty sure i'm not going to get in this year so i'll i will enjoy it i'll be myself and i'll have a good time and i'll uh not mess up was the key thing and just uh hopefully come back the following year to to try again that was my entire attitude throughout the week mm. which looking looking back i probably shouldn't have had i probably should have gone gone for it and and believed in myself a bit more but i didn't i just went and relaxed and enjoyed it and uh we got home my squadron commander, who I said was a former Adaro, uh, was he, he was away on on a, an exercise. So he he rang me on it. He sat me at his. I t- told me to sit at his desk, and he rang my, his phone, which I answered. And he said, uh, 
just want to let you know that you've you've been successful in your application. You're, you're joining the Red Arrows, which I, I just couldn't, I genuinely could not believe it because I didn't think there was any chance I was getting in in 2007. But lo and behold, it, it was to be. And in fact, uh, so that night, that was a Friday and we had a rather big party at Happy Hour in the Mess at Lucas that night <laughs> uh, with lots of champagne. And I remember it very well because the next morning I was going on a four-week exercise to Denmark and we had to get a bus at four o'clock in the morning from from Lucas to Bryce Norton to go and join a TriStar. And I remember sitting on that coach the whole way from Lucas to Bryce Norton thinking, <laughs> oh, brilliant, I've just got in the Red Arrows, but boy, have I got a hangover. <laughs> that must have been a fantastic moment, though. It's. It, I couldn't believe it. I genuinely couldn't believe it. I thought he was winding me up because, mm. as I say, he'd, he'd been ex-reds. He knew how much it meant to me. And I, I thought he was teasing me. So it took, took a while for him to convince me that actually he was telling the truth. And that would have been in the sort of May time, May 2007. And then I only did, I did a month on straight away that next day uh, in Denmark flying the Tornado on the tactical leadership program. Got back from that. And then I only had another three or four weeks on the jet before I moved back to Lincolnshire to, to go and start training with the Reds. Who was the first person you told? Who was the first person I told? Well, because I told my mother when I was three, I, I rang her straight away and said, you know that thing I said to you when I was three? Uh, well, guess what? It's happening. Yeah, so it was, it was my mam. That's nice. Um, so you, you said, I've said, you know, pretty much straight onto the into the squadron and, and moving down to Lincolnshire. What was that initial training period like? What was How do you start out as a Red Arrow? So... Because so I'm, I'm talking now 2007, so 15 years ago, which is actually quite a long time, makes me feel quite old. The um, at the time, all Hawk T1 training was conducted at RF Valley. So that before you went to Lincolnshire, you had to swing via Valley, do ground school simulators, survival training, and then learn to fly the Hawk in on, on a. I think it was about a 10 hour refresher course. So you, you get 10 hours in the jet just to get qualified back on that type, and then go across to. Scampton where Central Flying School would teach you some of the Red Arrow specific things that other Hawk pilots wouldn't do Um, different types of emergency handling, the way you actually operate the airplane in certain phases of flight slightly differently Mm -hmm. because of the nature of the business so you get taught that by Central Flying School and then you're actually just shadowing um, the the team pretty much until the end of their season so you've got a about six weeks of, of shadowing the team, sitting in the back seat of the displays, going to air shows and just getting a feel for the, the pace of the job because it is pretty relentless. And I don't think when you go on the shortlist, you don't really, really understand quite how relentless it is throughout the, throughout the summer mm. season. So it's very useful to go and just have some exposure to that. Uh, and then the team go on leave. This is how it used to work anyway. The team would go on leave at the end of the season. And one of the pilots, probably one of the the executive officers who's due to leave, would would stay on while everyone else was away and start leading the new pilots in in small formations just to get used to the art of formation aerobatics, which to that point I'd never done before. So you just had to get used to that. And that's what you do for two weeks with the executive officer. Then the boss would come back and that's it. The training would start in earnest. And and it certainly did. We we hit the ground running. So, I mean, I I think the audience is probably fairly well um, acquainted with the sort of lifespan of a or traditional lifespan of a Red Arrows pilot. Um, you did the, the normal three years, is that right? Yeah, so 2008, 9 and 10 seasons were my, my standard three years, if you mm-hmm. like. So uh, brilliant time. In fact, I said we started training end of 2007, 
the 2007 team was then actually going on tour to Malaysia, as far as Malaysia. So I was uh, helping out the PR team. So I traveled ahead of the team to a variety of countries through the Europe and the Middle East to get all the way to Malaysia to, to go and promote Great Britain, which was brilliant because I... I was there as part of the PR team. I wasn't flying a jet there. I wasn't wearing a red suit. I was wearing a green suit and just helping out with, with all the other sort of behind the scenes aspects of the team, which was a really good insight into how those sections of the of the unit operate. Brilliant time. I think we spent around about six, seven weeks on tour and mm-hmm. got back just before Christmas 2007. And then went to Cyprus for my first year, 2008, for around about eight weeks. Did a lot of training. Got back from that. We did three displays in the uk i think and then we went straight over to america so actually Mm. my first year we went across the atlantic to go and display in canada and then down the eastern coast of the us ending up in new york harbor we did a display in new york harbor which was absolutely out this world it was (laughs) such a great experience so corner of your eye seeing seeing the manhattan skyline and then flying past the statue of liberty in formation with red white and blue smoke on was was so in for my first year in the team this was just Amazing. That's Absolutely a real brilliant. breakneck start. It was uh, going, you know, flying across a single engine get, jet going across the Atlantic is uh, certainly an eye opener as well. It, it focuses the attention when you you're at forty eight thousand feet going up towards Iceland, Greenland, and you've got we had a Nimrod search and rescue aircraft with us in case one of us had to eject in the Atlantic, and the boss on the radio stupidly asked him how many ships he could see. Now at the time, these these radars would go out to. Sort of 200 miles mm. massive area in front of the airplane and he couldn't see a single ship so you know if you had an engine fire and had to eject in the north atlantic you were going to be there for a long time before anything could come and rescue you so <laughs> yeah you i did a lot of staring at the engine gauges on that transit <laughs> wow was it as difficult so i remember a couple of years ago there was a documentary on channel five did the documentary do it justice to how difficult it was yeah, it's, it, 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 it does. Yeah, it's um, because there are so few options, you know, the, and one of the things that stood out from that Red Arrow's Take America or Do America, I can't remember what it was called, but that, that documentary you're referring to, one of the things they mentioned is that there's there's a an airfield on the southern tip of Greenland called Narsasuak. And if you commit to going there, you don't have the fuel to go anywhere else where you can land. So if the weather does turn as you're on your way there, you are stuck. You've got to get on that runway. Likewise, if if a jet were to burst a tire and and what we call black the runway, prevent the other jets landing, you have no option. There is nowhere else to go. So I don't remember from the documentary, there was something called a PNR, a point of no return. Mm. And that is the decision point halfway between, uh, as it was there, Iceland and Greenland or Goose Bay and Greenland going the other way. You had to decide, right, is the weather good? Are we going to get in there all that entire formation safely and then just as importantly, get out there again if the weather does turn. Yeah, so it was it was tricky. It was, and we did have to change our route a couple of times. We we were never meant to go to that airfield. We were trying to go somewhere further north, but again, the weather the weather was a factor. So plans changed, but that's the whole point of it. When you're doing something mm. that is as complex as that, you've got to have backups and you've got to have contingencies, and and it certainly it's, again focuses the mind. <laughs> um, from your three years, first three years flying with the team. Um, other than flying around Manhattan, uh, do you have any other particular memories? Anything that stands out? Any high points or even any low points? Well, so 
also in my first year, so 2008, it was the 90th anniversary of the Royal Air Force. So before we'd even got our red suits, we were given special permission to sort of go go on show for the public. And on the 1st of April, which was the anniversary of the formation of the Royal Air Force, we flew over London in in nine, as a nine ship with red, white and blue smoke on over Big Ben and, and House of Parliament and Whitehall. So that, that was definitely a standout moment because, you know, that was, this was before we've even been told we're officially Red Arrows pilots. We're going to go and celebrate the anniversary of, of the service. Mm. Uh, that was 2008. Brilliant time. In 2009, I was at Synchro Pair. So I was Synchro number two, Red 7 in my second year. Now, having said when I was three years old that all I wanted to be was a Red Arrows pilot and display with the Red Arrows at Biggin Hill. We didn't get to do it in my first year because we were in America when the Red Arrow, when the Big Hill Air Show was on. So it happened though in 2009. It was July 2009. I'm going to guess at the date. I think it was the 14th. Uh, but we landed at Biggin Hill, which was always special. You know, taking taking an aeroplane, a Royal Air Force aeroplane, into your hometown. That was special in itself. But then we got to actually display at Biggin Hill, which had been my lifelong dream, and it was it was a very very proud moment. But icing on the cake. I was part of the synchro pair, which was even better because it was mm. just so much fun you know, flying around, going over the airfield that, that I'd grown up going to all the time and, and seeing it from a very, very different vantage point. That's an interesting question, actually. Is it fun? Because obviously it must be very difficult. It's hard work and there's obviously an enormous amount of concentration required while you're displaying. But is it fun? Do you in, Is it enjoyable every day? Every time you're doing it, some of the time you're doing it. You're right. There's a, there's an awful lot of concentration and focus. You know, you are for that in in the blades case, 15 minutes. Red arrows case, probably 20, 22 minutes of display. You are you are focused. There, there are very few points at which you can actually have a relax. It, it's it's fairly uh, it's fairly intense, but it is fantastic fun. Whether you're training, whether you're displaying to half a million people on Bournemouth seafront, it is such an exhilarating experience it really is because you're trying to fly it absolutely perfectly so you're constantly trying to improve your own performance that's for all of us i think i could speak for everyone everyone enjoys a challenge mm. and that that is the challenge you want to enjoy the challenge of making it as perfect as possible so it is brilliant fun and you know you could probably hear on 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 the radio in in most displays how the tone of the pilot's voices they are they are enjoying it because you are you're quite fired up. You've got quite a lot of adrenaline yeah. pumping, and it is it is brilliant. Um, and actually, on when you're on the team itself, is how different is that to squadron life um, in the rest of the RAF? What's the environment like? Is it as a team? Obviously, you have the blues as well, and you have the 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 the, the non uh, display pilots as well, the display um, members around you. What's that like? How what what's that environment like? Well, I'd say. Probably in, in the winter months during training, it has a very similar feel to being on a normal, I don't want to say normal, but another Royal Air Force squadron, uh, similar-ish number of personnel. Um, the difference being is that for at least three days out of every week, there are visitors. So, you know, you, it's almost like being in, you're in a zoo because there are just people in there watching you all the time. It might be corporate visits, charity visits. Really? That got, many? Yeah, it's, it's three days a week during the winter. There would be people observing the brief, the debrief, watching one of the practices. We'd go and have lunch with them on those days when they were there. So that was the main difference is that the kind of there was a lot of people observing, a lot of flies on the wall, if you like. Uh, and the other thing is just that the sheer number of aircraft 
that are being generated by the personnel from the engineering department you know on a on a frontline squadron there are lots and lots and lots of engineers where there are fewer engineers on the red arrows they're actually probably generating more aircraft because the hawks generally more simple easier to maintain mm-hmm. more they are very very reliable airplanes um so that would be something else is that you, you see a lot of a lot of airplanes right out the front of the squadron where you probably wouldn't see that really on a on a frontline unit um yeah that's otherwise it, it has the feel of being you know, just like a normal squadron the makeup is the same so a wing commander officer commanding flight commanders are our squadron leaders mm-hmm. and then and then the team pilots are, are generally junior officers and then there are all the other ranks that that form the blues so it's a yeah a fantastic environment and, and always a good good feeling good vibe okay um and what point did you know you wanted to stay on with the team and did you know it was going you wanted to be a commentator at what point did you know that you wanted to become a commentator no that was uh unfortunately through tragedy so i'd, I'd left the team at the end of my my three years and i i'd been promoted so i was going to yeah, every pilot's worst nightmare i was going to fly a desk and i went to a desk job in bristol um and it was in a procurement job as well, so it wasn't uh, wasn't the most <laughs> exciting of things. Uh, although, I, with hindsight, I did I did learn an awful lot. It was in in the flying training environment because of my Takano experience. I went to be a subject matter expert for what is now the Texan, so the the replacement for the Takano um, at the time in 2010 11. It, it, it hadn't been decided, but uh, so I went to Bristol, moved to Bristol, and unfortunately, it was in 2011 when in August. John Egging was killed in Bournemouth, and then the the very soon after, Sean Cunningham was killed at Scampton. So there was a big shuffle required in the team to to make a nine ship for the 2012 season, and the the chap who'd been asked to go back as the as Red Ten as the supervisor uh, was actually moved into Sean's position to be Red Five. So they needed somebody to come back and be Red Ten, and uh, they asked if I would be willing to do it. Uh, at the time, I wasn't enjoying my desk job, so I was quite happy to do it. And and generally, because because the team had had such a horrible time, you know, mm. that August and November, they they were really dark periods for the team. And I was I'm very passionate about the Red Arrows. I really wanted it to continue. So I, of course, agreed to go back and be be the supervisor, which I agreed to go and do for two years. And it turned into three, and then turned into six. So it was yeah, it was unfortunately through tragedy. But uh, looking yeah. back, it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was very proud to have been asked to do it. Mm. I mean, you, why did it last so long? Why did it turn into six? Was it because you were enjoying it so much? It. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was enjoying it a lot. Uh, I they they couldn't find a suitable replacement at one point, so they asked, "How would I feel about extending for another year?" I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." And then I was looking at what my options were for coming up to a retirement point from the air force what was going to do uh, what what jobs the the posting officers were likely to send me to and and i said well any chance i could just stay here and do another year mm. and they said well why don't you just stay and do another three years so i uh i did another three so okay. six years as red 10 well, of course I'm envious sorry whilst commentating so that, that people often ask me that so was i envious when i was commentating at the very start i did not enjoy commentary you know because i was i was sat on the ground watching the boys having fun and wanting to go and get in a jet and do it myself 
but that was very short-lived, very short-lived. And I, probably after about five or six public commentaries, did I realise just how much fun commentating is as well. Because because I had the background of, of flying the display and as, as synchro, so I, I knew the sort of te- technical aspects of it, I, I thought I was quite a good bridge between what was happening mm. in the air and between the people watching and listening on the ground. So I I then realised that you could actually have... You know, half a million people on a beach, you could have them like putty in your hand and you tell them to wave or clap and they would do it. And it was brilliant. It just felt like real power with a microphone. It was fantastic. So uh, I, I really got into it. And actually, by the end of my six years commentating, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Really, mm. really enjoyed it and uh, never looked back. You know, it was it was brilliant. I The other thing is, because I was on the ground at every single public display, in fact, the Red Arrows can't perform without the supervisor there. So I had to be on the ground at every display. Uh, I got to meet so many, so many thousands of people. And it was brilliant. It was, be- it was sometimes the best part of the job. You know, talking to a six-year-old kid who said he'd wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot since he was three. I said, well, you can do it. You can actually do this because, look, I'm here in a red suit because <laughs> I had that same dream. You know, and that was so special, being able to meet these these kids and, and not just kids, you know, other air show fans and, and people that were just enjoying being at an air show and I just yeah lapped it up every every single place I went uh, obviously it was quite busy I was buzzing if we were doing two or three displays in a day it was really hectic for the for the supervisor because you've got to get from potentially landing a jet at let's use Bournemouth as an example you land land the jet at Bournemouth there'll be a helicopter waiting that helicopter would take you to the the display site you do your super, supervision commentary back in the helicopter back to the jet fly somewhere else into another helicopter and then do the same. And it, it was really quite hectic day and the schedule was really tight. So there were, unfortunately, a few times when you're on the ground at an air show and somebody wants to stop you for a selfie. And you just got to be quite blunt. I'm really sorry. I just can't. I haven't got time. You'll have to catch me next time. And so I always felt very sad if I had to say no. But <laughs> it was it was such a, yeah, it's it was a real, genuinely a real privilege. You're in a You're in a red suit with the union flag on your arm representing... The, the country, the Royal Air Force, and and meeting all these brilliant, brilliant public people, and uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm sure many listeners will have strong memories of you, a squirrel rocking up at an air show, and you jumping out, and I'm sure running over to a commentary position or wherever. <laughs> I do. I really enjoyed the squirrel as well. I I often give a lot of banter to to, to helicopter pilots just because that tends to be what fast jet pilots do. But uh, I I really enjoyed flying the squirrel. I probably did probably in the order of 250 300 hours in the squirrel after <laughs> after all that time and and with you know there were other aircraft other types of helicopter I sometimes had to use as well and I yeah I got I got quite used to operating a helicopter <laughs> which was quite was good. you actually flying helicopters or was you chauffeur driven yeah so I had a there was a, a central flying school helicopters instructor pilot who um would sit in the the right hand seat and I would sit in the left hand seat but it got to the point where you know because I'd seen them seen them do it so much and they on all, every transit they were giving me control and it got to the point where i was doing confined areas you know, <laughs> doing landing <laughs> landing on sloping grounds and it, it was uh yeah it was good fun it was good you fun. didn't you didn't regret the, the direction you went in at the start of your career then no because i've i think i've now got the opportunity to go and do some helicopter flight whereas i wouldn't if i'd been a helicopter pilot yeah. i wouldn't have had the opportunity to be a, uh, a red arrows pilot well, that's not true there is a there is a former red arrow who was first a helicopter pilot and you, you guys will probably know him as Ian Smith, who's a former Battle of Britain Memorial Flight Officer Commanding. Mm. 
he is now a part-time blades pilot as well but he oh, really? started his career as a chinook pilot that's really interesting because i actually i mean you mentioned earlier obviously about frontline pilots i did wonder whether it it was possible to start as a helicopter pilot and move if, on to it, the, it, what, the way it was working again back in the sort of 90s if um they were short of fast jet pilots so if you were performing well and it was one of your aspirations to get a, a fast jet crossover, so you could come from the multi-engine or helicopter worlds, you would normally have to go and be an instructor at basic fast jet training or basic flying training on the, the Jet Provost or the Takano. And then if you did well as an instructor, then you could progress and go through the, the next stages of the Hawk training, much like a student were, exactly the same as a as an ab initio student would do. And that's what Smithy did. So he, he was a Chinook pilot. He went and instructed on the Jet Provost went through his training, went to the Jaguar. So his frontline tour was on the Jaguar. And then he joined the Red Arrows in the late 90s, did three years on the Red Arrows. And then he went to the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight a couple of years after that to be the officer commander. Mm. So he's had a fantastic career. Mm. So um, you mentioned earlier that you you, uh, came in as Red 10 through tragedy and and through unfortunate circumstances. And then you'd left the team. Um, You'd moved on, I suppose. And then, of course, unfortunately, in 2018, you came back through again unfortunate circumstances um, to to fill in uh, another position in the in the team. Actually, as a flyer this time, as a pilot. Yeah, so I'd I'd finished my six years as Red Ten. So at the end of the 2017 season, we went on a, a small tour of the Middle East, and I did my last supervising commentating in Bahrain. And then I came back and left. So I left in sort of the December of 2017 and I was going to be the air safety manager for the Central Flying School so not far away from Scampton down the road at Cranwell but in that role I was also going to be a Hawk examiner and instrument racing examiner so I'd left the team I'd gone and requalified as an instructor this time on the Hawk I I was in this job for three months and then very sadly there was a a tragic accident at Valley where uh, unfortunately the, the jet crashed the pilot ejected very last minute, uh, but the engineer in the back, Corporal John Bayless, was was unfortunately killed. Um, the pilot was injured and couldn't continue in the Red 3 position. So because of, I'd just left the team, I was still Hawk current. I was still flying the Hawk for the Central Flying School, and I'd been Red 3 previously in 2008. They said, look, this is very short. We've got a very short training period now to try and make public display authority on time. Um, we need you to come back and be Red 3 for, for 2018, which... Yeah, the, the the key part of all that is it was again through tragic circumstances, mm-hmm. but it was uh, very sad indeed, and again really dark times. So it, the way I'd seen it throughout my career is that you, you quite often seen fast jet pilots and um, killed in flying accidents. It I say quite often it was it was rare, but it had happened, and I'd I'd been exposed to it. What I hadn't seen is a, a squadron member killed in a jet that wasn't a, an aviator. Yeah, it wasn't a pilot, so it was really hard for the team to to bear, and uh, it was very sad being a part of it. So obviously, yes, tragic circumstances. It must have been very dark days for the squadron, but that must have contrasted quite a bit with it being 2018 and the hundredth anniversary of the RAF and all the celebrations going on around that and everything being done to mark that. That must have been a weird, a weird contrast. It, it was a hundred percent, and and that was the key point is that uh, because of the such short period between that accident happening and public display authority for the for the 100th anniversary of the Royal Air Force it had to be quite quick so it was quite an easy fix for me to come and do it to try and stay on the timeline 
and and make a nine ship because it was quite crucial. It was crucial for the for the Royal Air Force to have mm. the Red Arrows as a nine ship that year. So, uh, yeah, it was it was hard work going through Springhawk because of the the tragedy and what had happened. But uh, you know, as the season then started getting going and, and people were were starting to celebrate the Royal Air Force's centenary, it 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 certainly still cast a shadow on on twenty eighteen, but. Uh, it was a good way of coping with it, I think. Mm. When you're in the Red Arrows, what is your relationship with the rest of the RAF like? Do you have... Uh, do things change? Is there a certain amount of disconnect with, with the rest of the service? I, I would say, certainly from, from what I saw, absolutely not. No, because you, know, you still go to... You go to Bryce Norton to go and refuel. You go to Cranwell. You go to all different bases to go and refuel. And I certainly didn't ever see a disconnect between mm. the, the wider Royal Air Force and the team um, and it was always quite warming to see the level of support that the rest of the service would provide to the team and actually when you're on the ground because I was on the ground at air shows when you get to see all of the other units so you see you know the, the Chinook display team or the Royal Air Force regiment stand at Bournemouth all these people that you'd go and say hello to them talk to them and and I'd never saw any disconnect between the team and the wider Royal Air Force really mm. No, I mean it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily prompted by anything. It just it occurred to me because it's obviously, to my mind, it, what I had always assumed was it was very different. It's very different flying. It's very different operation to to a normal squadron life. Obviously, what you've been saying today is that actually it's it's not that different after all. Um, no, it, I didn't think it was that different. You, you, you've got a, a very different task. You know, when you're flying a you're flying a, a tornado or a, or a typhoon, your your mission is to use that aircraft as a as a weapons platform and you're delivering that weapon at a time at a place uh, no matter what role you're in that is your that is your job as a as a frontline pilot whereas in the red arrows you're you're flying to to make it look good you know, you're it's all about the finesse and the accuracy whereas while you have to have finesse and accuracy for delivering weapons it's not mm. in the same vein you, you know, you're you're not on display so it's a very very different role and that was that was quite a big mindset change when when you start training as a red arrows pilot um and while you're on the circuit the display circuit obviously you travel all around the world as well as in the uk um and then you have big international events like react for example when you you meet other international display teams like the patrie de france or the frederick tricolori and, and and big teams like that what's your relationship with them like and do you do you trade things do you learn off each other is it uh collaborative for example it is 100 percent. so it's uh it's always good going to shows where there's other national display teams it you're always going to learn something from them. It's always, uh, there's a little bit of, I don't want to say friendly rivalry, but you know, mm. it's that, that sort of, we, there's mutual respect without a doubt. Every single team I've met in the past, there's mutual respect because you know how hard they've worked to get where they are and what they mean, what it means to them representing their service in their country. And because you know it's the same deal with being a Red Arrows pilot, you, you know what it means to them. So, yeah, certainly a great deal of, of mutual respect. You know, I've worked a lot with the the French team in the past, the Italians, the Swiss, the, both American teams, uh, the Canadians. I went flying with the, the Canadian Snowbirds actually while I was out in Quebec, which was uh, fantastic. They're really, mm. really amazing. And it's quite an interesting story because, as I said, I trained in Canada in 2004, and the guy that was on my course. Uh, who was a, a Canadian Air Force pilot. When I was then Red 3 in Quebec in 2008, he was actually Snowbird 4 in Quebec in 2008. So he got to fly in my back seat for a display and I got to fly in his, 
I think it was his left hand seat. It was a side by side cockpit, and uh, I got to sit in his his display. So it was really brilliant that I trained with this guy four years previously, and now mm. we're both display pilots for our national teams, showing each other our displays from the from the cockpit, which was really brilliant, really brilliant. And it's in fact that's still one of my most memorable displays was the one with him in the back seat because it was a sunset display. The weather could the conditions could not have been better. It was absolutely perfect, and and I got my mate from Canada in the back. It was fantastic. <laughs> uh, so that's so I I think the answer to the question is there's there is a a brilliant level of mutual respect and collaborative thing you talked about. Yeah, we worked hard. I think it was 2016 when the Thunderbirds were last at Riyadh. You know, we sat down and had brainstorming sessions, talked about mm. best practice, how they did business, how we did business. We each took ideas away from each other's processes. Uh, I, uh, in fact, am a board member of the European Airshow Council. I, I just last year ran, this year, in fact, ran the first uh, formation display team safety seminar. And we've got uh, same again happening in February where we've got international display teams taking part in that. So I'm really looking forward to meeting up with the likes of the Saudi Hawks, for example. They're sending mm-hmm. a rep. So we can all, again, share best practice, talk about the safety side, how maybe procedures could be improved, what people do that work well, what doesn't work well, uh, maneuvers that the teams fly. So in fact, the, the Red Arrow's infinity break that you see in the display this year, that was actually stolen from the Canadian Snowbirds after our visit to Quebec in 2008. <laughs> I was, so, do you know, I, I, did, I didn't want to, to say it outright, but do you ever see other teams' manoeuvres and think, hmm, that would look yeah, good? Absolutely, 100%. And, and, and I've seen it with other teams that have used Red Arrow's manoeuvres. You know, the, the, the Black Eagles that were at Riyadh this year, absolutely fantastic. When they came to Riyadh in, I think, 2012, yep. their routine was very, very, very similar to the, the 2008 or nine Red Arrows display, as in the shapes, yeah. the, the the pattern, the manoeuvres. And yeah, they, they were a fledgling team at the time. Why not? Why not start with something that looks good? You know it looks good because you've seen another team do it and, and use that as a building block to to then put your own flair into it. So, do you know, yeah. The, so I'm, I'm very happy you said that because I got a lot of stick <laughs> the first time they were here. And in fact, this time, for saying that I thought a lot of their manoeuvres were at best very similar to the to the Reds. And a lot of people, no, no, you can't say that. How can you say that? And here we have it from the, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. No, I, um, I watched that display of, um, in 2012 at, at Fairford and I thought, oh, that's very similar to the, the routine <laughs> that I'd flown. It was very similar. And and I don't, you know, I don't knock them for it. I think if you're, if you're starting mm-hmm. out as a formation team, then get some inspiration ideas. And as I say, then you can put your own flair on it, which they most certainly 100% have because their display this year was absolutely phenomenal. Sensational. It really was, I, yeah. I actually, I, I interviewed, um, the, the article's yet to come out, I interviewed them at Riyadh for a, a feature for the for UCAR um, and one of the things that came out of it was was they were saying how, obviously how powerful the T50 is. Um, allows them to that, do so much and, and, and they can do tight with, yeah, and it's, stuff. It's, uh, it's a great looking aeroplane. It's a great performing aeroplane. It's obviously very modern. It it looks brilliant. It sounds brilliant and performs very well indeed. And and I have to say, it was it wasn't just the flying. You know, I, I observed them quite a lot. I was on the ground at React with a with a static aeroplane this year. And I observed them quite a lot on the ground. And just the way they conducted end to end of being in the UK during the season was was really mind blowing. And I, I you know, really do doff my cap to them because mm. I thought they were fantastic. Um well I mean should we touch very briefly on the on the aircraft itself, uh, having mentioned about the T fifty, very powerful, very modern. The Hawk T one is maybe starting to show its its age a little bit at the moment. And actually, I think I think this season there have been 
a few shows where they've had reliability issues um, and have had a couple of no uh, no shows because of it. Unfortunately, um, do you think do you think the T one's going to make its its out of service date of twenty thirty? And do you uh, well, think? And what what do you think would possibly be a replacement for it? The, the, that is probably the most most often asked question about about the red arrows is what what's going to replace the hawk? And the honest answer is I don't know. I, I, I genuinely don't know mm-hmm. if the desire is to, to stay British because it's a British team, then they're potentially struggling at this stage. Don't know. There might be new aircraft in the, in the pipeline that, that could be suitable replacements, but yeah, the clock is probably ticking to find that replacement and get it into service ready for the out of service date of 2030, which to answer your first question, that's been committed to, you know, that mm-hmm. is, that is a commitment. So, you know, funding has been earmarked to, Snag the the T one to twenty thirty, and I, I hope that is going to be the case. I think there's just been a lot of bad luck this year. I'm not connected enough to the engineering yeah. world with the team to to know the ins and outs of the detail, but I think there's just been a bit of bad luck with with uh, a lot of the aircraft. You know that bird strike in real, for example. Well, yeah, you know, of course, you, and that's not you, there, not there the are things, <laughs> and and that that jet is probably going to be out of action for a good number of weeks while it gets assessed, repaired, etc. So. You know, there, there is unfortunately an element of of mm. luck in there as well, which uh, quite clearly that on that occasion wasn't there. Um, so let's move on to sort of the, the modern day, as it were. Um, you're no longer in the Red Arrows. You're no longer in the RAF. Um, what you are doing now, of course, is flying for the Blades, uh, an aerobatic display team who are comprised, I believe, still entirely of uh, exclusively of former Red Arrows pilots. Yeah, so the Blades Aerobatic team, this year's team, are we're all former Red Arrows pilots, and we've actually got a, a former Red Arrows leader as well, actually. Mm-hmm. So Ben Murphy, who was a Red One back in 2009 and 10, sorry, 2010 and 11, he is in the Blades as well. So that is kind of our USP. The, 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 actually, the biggest point about the Blades is that we are the world's only aerobatic airline because we can we can put fair paying passengers in the front of our extra 300s and fly them in close formation a couple of meters apart mm-hmm. as a four ship with uh, fair paying passengers in the front going upside down and very close together so it's uh, the only opportunity you could do that with as an airline anywhere in the world mm. um, how did you come to join the Blades how did you get involved that is I think it was the 2017 Bournemouth Air Show. We were at a signing session uh, at a hotel in Bournemouth, and I was sat down just waiting for the the public to arrive to start signing uh, some Red Arrows brochures and things. And my phone rang, and it was a number I didn't recognise, so I answered it. And it was the station commander from RAF Coningsby. And I'd just been through the selection process to try and become the next officer commanding Battle of Britain Memorial flight. And... I was, yeah, that was the next thing. I, the other, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot display at Biggin Hill, but I also wanted to display a Spitfire at Biggin Hill. Mm-hmm. That was my next goal. So the way to do that, I thought, was in the Royal Air Force, become officer commanding Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, and then you get to fly all the warbirds, and and then that would have given me my my shot at my second uh, life dream. Anyway, I got this phone call, and it was from the station commander, and he said, I'm really sorry to tell you, you haven't been successful, so you, you won't be joining the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, which obviously it, it was a, a big shame. You know, I, was quite dis- I, say I was quite disappointed. I was very disappointed. And it just so happened that the Blades were sat there at this, uh, at this signing session, and I bumped into Andy Evans, who's now Blade One, and he said, um, I said, what's going on with you? I said, oh, I've just taken this call from the station commander at Coningsby to tell me I haven't got the BBMF job. He said, well... Why don't you come and have a chat with us? Come and do some flying with us, see what you think. 
okay, I'll have a look. <laughs> and uh, and that was it, really. I got hooked because um, I went and joined the team part-time. While I was at, as explained, the Central Flying School job earlier, I'd, I'd been given permission to go and join the Blades as a part-time pilot just for the display side because I didn't, at the time, have a, a commercial pilot's license. So I was guesting for the Blades at weekends was the plan. And in fact, I was... I was actually in a Blades Extra doing a training trip at Sywell in Northampton when that tragic accident at Valley occurred. Mm. And uh, and then unfortunately, I then got the call saying, you're going back to the Reds. So I had to put that Blades plan on hold, but by which point I'd already agreed to go and join them full-time the following year anyway. So I went from being Red 3 in 2018 to straight, literally, the week after I hung up my Red suit for the last time, I was I was in the Blade 3 aeroplane doing a similar job in a... really in a, an extra 300 um i mean i'm not gonna ask the stupid question of well I, I, maybe it's not a stupid question how how does the extra 300 compare with a, a hawk t1 or in, perhaps a tornado f3 um but yeah how, how, how does the blades compare with with a team like the red arrows as, a, as an outfit as obviously civilian organization so the the key thing about the blades is it was formed by a former Red One back in 2006, or one of the founding directors of, of what is actually 2XL Aviation. So the Blades are a business unit of 2XL Aviation, and, and, but 2XL started with the Blades. So I think it was six people, four aeroplanes back in 2006. And the, the gap in the market was seen by, by Andy Offer, this former leader of the Red Arrows, to see, well, you can't get a passenger ride in a Red Jet, but you can get an experience that is broadly similar by going a couple of meters away from another aeroplane upside down. So he established this this aerobatic airline, and then the company to Excel has just grown and grown and grown. You know, it's gone from, I think it was six people, four airplanes in two thousand six to I think thirty two airplanes and close to four hundred people now, uh, in a variety of of operational roles for the government, for industry, um, test and evaluation, oil spill response, search mm. and rescue, charter, all of these different different roles that that all started with the blades. You no, know, it was the blades that started it all. And I think that's the, the the key thing about being in the blades is it, it's quite a small stepping stone away from the Royal Air Force because a lot of the personnel are, are ex-military. Certainly the founding members are all ex-military. So the modus operandi of the company is very much akin to being in the military. Sure. And the way the, the, way the blades operate is pretty much identical. You know, the, the standing operating procedures are are taken and adapted from the Red Arrows SOPs into Blades SOPs because everyone that joins the team knows them because they've lived three years plus doing them in the Reds yeah. and they know they work. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. What about the physicality of actually flying the aircraft? Because although the Hawks faster, the, the extras look a lot more manoeuvrable. Some of the manoeuvres look a bit more demanding. Is there a physical difference between flying the two? Yeah, there is 100% a physical difference. The the thing about a Hawk is because it's it's a jet and it's got high performance, it can actually sustain G um, a lot more than an extra. So a Hawk can, from memory now, I think it could pull 8G and push minus 3G, whereas an extra can pull 10G and, more alarmingly, can push minus 10G. So minus 10g minus 10g and i've I've not been anywhere near that and i don't <laughs> think i really want to it's i've been to minus five and that's uncomfortable enough but uh but that's the, the main difference is that it's in the in the extra it's, it's all short and sharp so it's a lot of g but it doesn't last very long whereas in in the synchro pair for example in the reds you know you're pulling 6g and you're pulling it for a long time so mm. it's a sustained g where it becomes quite fatiguing 
I'm not saying it's not fatiguing the extra, but that would that would be the main difference. Okay. And but actually, when as I said, I went from being red three to blade three, and and I I often get asked which one's easier, and we'll, we'll take a formation loop as an example. My hands do pretty much exactly the same in an extra as they did in a hawk. You know, staying on the leader's left wing, moving my left left hand to control the throttle and my right hand to control the the control column for the for the control surfaces. They pretty much move identically. Tiny, tiny, tiny minute movements to to operate the control surfaces. The biggest difference really is in my feet because because the extra's got a propeller and it's got quite a lot of thrust from the engine over a big rudder and a big propeller. The, when you slow down, that uh, slipstream effect from the propeller has quite a big effect over the rudder. So you have to use your feet in a in a propeller-driven aeroplane to prevent your at the top of a loop, for example. So in a jet, you didn't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. You know, the the, rud- the rudder pedals are almost footrests because you don't you have to use them. Whereas in in a propeller-driven aeroplane, with speed changing, you have to use your feet to uh, to control that. So that's the biggest difference. My hands pretty much do exactly the same thing. My feet are doing quite a lot more when I'm flying the extra. So that's the only big difference, really. And of course, the airplane doesn't go as fast. It, it can do yeah. 220 odd knots as opposed to 550 knots. Um, but I sometimes think that almost makes for a better display, just because everything is is more in front of the crowd. You know, there is less there's less time positioning a four ship of extras than there is positioning a nine ship of hawks, and, and yeah. less airspace taken up. So, you know, that 15 minutes of a blaze display is there is something right in front of the crowd all the time. Um, which you don't necessarily get with with a jet display team. And does that uh, do you then have a different perspective as a pilot? Because obviously, I mean, an extra has a lovely big um, you know canopy, lots of visibility. I assume. Do you, are you seeing more? Are you more aware of the crowd in front of you? Yeah, you are. Because the other thing is because we're slightly le- well, we are considerably less performance. We we can actually operate to that one hundred and fifty meter display line. Whereas the jets are all at the 230 meter mm-hmm. display line, so that that 80 meters doesn't sound a lot, but it actually is. You know, from from seeing making out people on the beach, you can see a lot more when you're doing 180 knots at 150 meters past them than you are at 400 knots at 230 meters. So yeah, you do get a, a really good view of people on the beach. It's uh, it's actually one of the best parts of the job as well. Is you're buzzing along a very packed Bournemouth beach and flinging the airplane upside down and you can see people waving, you know, people often, they always say, I was, I was you, going to ask. Yeah. I've always said, we can see you waving, make sure you wave kids. And a lot of the mums and dads go, yeah, yeah, of course you can, but no, you can, you genuinely can. So, so do make sure you give, give everyone a wave. <laughs> do you have a, dis- a favorite display venue within the UK? Do I, oh, I, I'd have to say big and Hill because hometown and, and what it means to me. And I've, I've been very lucky. I've, I've displayed there. A few times with the reds and with the blades, I still haven't reached that second goal of displaying a Spitfire at Biggin Hill. But watch this space; I'm hoping that's going to come off very soon. Uh, so that would be, in, from a personal meaning perspective, I think Biggin Hill would be my display location. It used to be good fun displaying with Synchro down in Dartmouth and Foy down in Cornwall, you know, up and down the the river valleys. There, they were always brilliant, mm. brilliant displays. But I think from a both the red 10 being on the ground and doing a display and seeing the size of the crowd. I've mentioned it a few times now, but Bournemouth, you know, it just it is so vast. That display line is so long and there are so many people on both the top of the cliffs and, and on the beach. You, there are just people everywhere. And it's, and there's always a really, really good atmosphere in the town for the four days. So I do love the Bournemouth air festival. That's cool. 
Um, I mean, it's really interesting to hear it from a a display pilot's perspective about seeing the crowd. And and it's interesting that it is maybe imbalanced, but it's a two-way thing. Like, obviously, you you see the interaction from the crowd and obviously you can't hear them, but you, you, you get a sense of the atmosphere, presumably. Well, that's something I used to pride myself in with with the team was that I would always try and put crowd reactions on the radio. So at a suitable time, I'd press the transmit button from the beach so that the boys and and girl in the cockpit could hear could hear what the crowd were doing. You know, we we did this thing when uh, I used to then at the end of the show, if the if the guys had enough fuel left after the display, they'd rejoin and do a fly pass with the with the air brakes out with the red, white and blue. And I would get the crowd to cheer as loud as they possibly could. And I'd hold the radio in the air, press the transmit button, and, and you could then hear the crowd's reactions. And it was, it was actually something that Andy Robbins, who was a Red 10 in my first year when I was in the Reds, he did it at um, a dance music festival called Global Gathering. <laughs> and honestly, the, the amount of noise that was coming out of this crowd was absolutely incredible. You know, the whistles and the cheering and the, and the dance music. And I remember him pressing the transmit button for for us to hear what was going on, on the ground and it it really did get me fired up in the cockpit so it, it was really good fun as the person on the ground to try and yeah let the guys in the cockpits know what was happening down there do you still get that with the blades yeah so we do we do have a commentator with blades we've um and she hasn't has she done that this year i don't think she has done that this year actually no we've only got one display left as well so i don't think we're going to get that we'll have to make sure <laughs> it happens next year <laughs> Um, and actually, you, you mentioned Two XL. I th- you think you in the during the pandemic, you you flew with them with their PA thirty one Navajo. Is that right? Yeah. So the pandemic was obviously a difficult time for everybody, but mm-hmm. it, it, the aviation world got got super hard hit by it so from a from an employment perspective. And then the restrictions on flying were were such that people just couldn't do anything. And of course, the the air shows all dried up for twenty twenty. We did we did one public display in twenty twenty. That was in Guernsey. So horrendous year for air shows. Passenger flying was difficult at the start of sort of that end of lockdown period because the the front seat and the back seat are, I think, only a meter apart or just under a meter. So social distancing was difficult. <laughs> so we lost a lot of revenue in our passenger flying. Um, and you know, for the team survival, we had to cut costs. And and to, well, a way of doing that was to send some of the pilots to another business unit within Two Excel to go and carry out some of the functions of that unit which was what was called special missions within 2xl where they operate king airs and piper navajos or panthers so twin engine commuter 1970s commuter aircraft but they've been specially modified with a lot of sensors and equipment to carry out a variety of tasks so oil spill response where they go out and spot oil spills for the companies then 727 to go and spray dispersant on Uh, search and rescue for the coast guard you know, there was border force tasking, uh, various others for the Maritime Coast Guard Agency, so f- fisheries patrols. So this was all sort of the Brexit period where we have to go and observe a lot of the fishery stuff going on. Um, and a bit of operational training for some of the services as well, which was quite interesting. So, yeah, it was it was very different. Having gone from you know buzzing around in an extra, going upside down, showing mm. people fun, you know, I was now into a into a real job in a in a twin engine airplane and i have to say when i when i got my commercial license you have to do a lot of theory about aircraft with two engines i thought well i'm i'm never going to use this so i won't, I won't remember it and lo and behold <laughs> 18 months later i was in a 1970s twin engine piston airplane um yeah, over the over the 
channel at a thousand feet at night. So it's, it's very interesting. But it was it was actually very very rewarding you know, mm. to to know you were doing something for, for a national tasking for the Maritime Coast Guard Agency was was very rewarding indeed. And it was all single pilot, so you'd be up the front on your own with a, a sensor operator down the back operating the the sensors, and really challenging, really challenging. You know, you've got to get over. Talked about the channel out in the southwest approaches off Cornwall, off Lands End, in in you know, weather that was challenging to go and carry out, for example, a search and rescue mission. And yeah, 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 very interesting. Is it something you would consider in the future? Let's talk about happening again this winter, just because we've now, you know, we've been through all the training. We're we're not necessarily current on the aeroplane, but regaining currency is very quick. So, you know, why why not? If you've got experienced pilots that can that can go and do it, why not? And so there's talk of that happening again. So just waiting to hear if I have to go to Doncaster to to get my instrument rating revalidated. Okay. It, would would you want to? Is it something you want to do? It, it was very good. The, the issue was it was it was the shift pattern was very difficult with a young family, especially sure. during the, the COVID restrictions. So I was away from home five nights a week um, because it was you know, the the base for to excel special missions is is a long way away. So I was having to spend five nights a week away. And I've got two young daughters and that's not fair on the family to, to keep going away for that long. So mm-hmm. it is definitely something I want to do from the flying perspective, but from the family perspective, I've got a, there's a balance. Is that something that has, has changed now you're on Civvy Street, so to speak? Um, is that been a change of lifestyle with your family and, and personal life? Yeah, it's because I'd spent the last 10 years of my Air Force career in, in the Reds, the, the pace of the Reds is is such that you're away all the time. You know, you're spending a lot of time away. You're, and even if you are at home, you know, they're long, as a Red Ten, they were long days. There's a lot of work behind the scenes, so it was it was pretty relentless. And you get your block leave at Christmas and during the summer and at Easter, but um, other than that, there's very little t- scope for time off. And it was it was quite a hectic schedule. So what what we try and do in the Blaze is yes, it's still a hectic schedule with all the passenger flying and the air shows and fitting everything commercially around it, but we try and also have a much stronger lean towards the family requirement and and that's really quite good because you still get all the fun of going to air shows and and doing mm. what we what we love doing but also get to spend more time at home which is uh, certainly much needed okay um and you recently uh flew another type of aircraft as well uh which looks quite good fun you're talking about earlier about your, your dream of flying a spitfire uh, yeah you, so, you didn't yes, get to display it at big um, hill but Towards the end of September 2020, I was very fortunate to be offered the chance to fly the Grey Spitfire ML407, which is um, based at Siwa, where the blades are based. And so I went through a, a training package on the, in the it's a two seat Spitfire. So flew with an instructor and then got let loose to go and fly solo, which was you know, an absolute dream. Yeah, it was very emotional. To, something I'd always wanted to do. Of course, Battle of Britain was was always forefront of my brain growing up in Biggin Hill. And I got this very fabulous opportunity to go and to fly the Spitfire, which I'm absolutely, truly grateful for. Is that something that might become, you mentioned, you, you, you said watch this space, <laughs> something that might become a regular occurrence? Well, so I, I, I qualified on the aeroplane in order to give passenger experience rides, which is what Ultimate Warbird flights do with the with ML407. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started doing that in, I think my first passenger was probably July 21. And I've flown quite a few now in the, in the two-seater, so passenger sits behind and... It, that in itself is some of the most rewarding flying you're ever going to do because that the aeroplane has such an effect on every single person 
from an emotional perspective or from just it was a bucket list thing or their their mm. father was a spitfire pilot yeah you know, it, it's always a a very special experience taking people flying in it but then in april of this year uh, i was then asked how do you fancy displaying the spitfire as well so here we go <laughs> this is definitely something i want to do so i i checked out with a display authorization exa- uh, evaluator and got my how uh, called cat c display authority so i can now display uh, warbirds which is fantastic i've only done this summer i've been busy with the blades so i've done i think i've done about three or four spitfire displays uh and in both a mark nine two-seater and a, and a mark five as well so and in fact this weekend coming up I've, uh, i'm not sure when you're broadcasting but i've got a i've got a display on saturday and I've got a display on Sunday this weekend. So, okay. Yeah, the first weekend I saw where there wasn't a blaze display in the calendar, I thought, right, I'm going to go and display the Spitfire. It must be incredible. It, it is a real pinch yourself moment. You know, just uh, this, there's one display I did at a proms concert, which I'd seen, I'd seen Carolyn Grace do in that, in that very aeroplane and always thought it was so magical. You know, this Spitfire, the silhouette, the Spitfire with the, the orchestra playing this classical music. I, I always wanted to do that as well. So very lucky last month to to actually fulfill that part of the dream and now it's just a case of uh convincing someone that there should be a display at biggin hill <laughs> well i'm sure it will happen i'm sure if you you mention it to the powers that be <laughs> yeah. well get, I'm, get, I'm get, get to listen it. get to listen to the podcast yeah, or get to listen to the podcast um if you could pick any other type of aircraft to fly what would it be do you have a dream other than the spitfire <sighs> Could be could be anything. It doesn't have to be flying now. It could be long retired. Oh, it could be or... historical. Uh, okay. Well, I think I've often asked the question is what what flying with the Red Arrows in formation was something I've always wanted. To, I always wanted to do Concorde, and I never got to do mm-hmm. Concorde because the last time they did it was, I think it was the Queen's Golden Jubilee in two thousand and two. So it was before I joined. Um, did, you know, I flew with some incredible aeroplanes uh, in the Red Arrows, but never got to do Concorde. And I wish I'd done that. But actually, piloting an aeroplane, I'd love to have a go in a Blackbird. I think. Mm. Yeah, the SR seventy one. I mean, what a machine! And and you know, read some of the books about how that thing worked and what it did. I think, I think that would be pretty cool. Well, they've got the the F one one seven flying again, so who knows? <laughs> who knows? You never know. Or that's that. What's that thing from Top Gun Maverick? The uh, oh the god, Dark Star, Dark or something? Star. Yeah. Yes. So the, I'm not quite sure that's how test pilots work in real life, but. <laughs> Um, I suppose there was the only thing to end on then is is what do you, what does your future hold other than presumably flying with the blades for the foreseeable future? I absolutely love this job. You know, it, it, to to get up every morning and and go and do what I love doing, and more importantly, having the opportunity to share the experience with people that is what is so magical about it. You know, the, going and doing aerobatics on my own for a display is great fun, as we said before. It's, it's exhilarating. It's great fun. It's challenging, but genuinely having someone in the front. And exposing them to not just aerobatics, but aerobatics two meters away from somebody—that mm-hmm. is the best part of this job, and and I do absolutely love it. So, yeah, I I see myself on the blades for a long time. I'm saying it quite quietly because my partner's listening, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure she'd like me to get a uh, a real job. But um, no, I, I I see myself long term doing this uh, for as long as it may continue, and and uh, yeah, look forward to giving many many more passenger experiences. Brilliant. Well, um, I guess all that remains to say is thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's It's been an absolute delight. I mean, it's been fascinating to learn about I mean, not just the Red Arrows, but flying in the Blades as well and, and what you're doing at the moment. Um, it's been really, really insightful. 
No, thank you. It's a, it's great. What, as I said before, what's really warming is to to know how much support there is for display flying in the UK and and being on the beach at Bournemouth and hearing the crowd's reactions is is absolutely amazing. So uh, keep up the good work with the podcast and and your reviews. Thank you very much. Um, that's been another episode of the UK Airshare Review podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it around with your friends, your family, anyone you know who is interested in aviation, who's seen the Red Arrows, who's cheered at the Bournemouth seafront. Um, we're on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at UK Airshare Review. You can find all of our reviews on our website at airshows.co.uk. And you can also join the discussion uh, on our forums, which are at forums.airshows.co.uk. Thank you very much and see you for another episode. Goodbye.